Welcome to the Only One Business Show with me, your host, James Nathan, chatting to some of the UK's leading business professionals, sharing tips, insights, and advice on how to create amazing customer experiences whilst building bigger, better, and more profitable businesses as a result. What can you do in your business today and in the years to come to truly delight your clients? What exceptional experiences can you give them to take away and cherish? How can you delight the most important person in the world? Satisfaction makes you one of many. Delighting clients makes you the only one. And you can't be just one. You have to be the only one. Hello and welcome to the Only One Business Show with me, your host, James Nathan. And today I've got a wonderful guest for you. This person is a diversity, inclusion and cultural change strategist with experience through the end-to-end talent management cycle. She's worked with organisations as diverse as Capgemini, Salesforce, Audible, NTT Data and Bayer Media, designing and implementing inclusive talent management practices and driving true cultural change. Her collaborative style means that she works in real partnership with all her consultancy clients to create impactful outcomes for their business. She's now the founder and CEO of A New Normal, a diversity and inclusion consultancy founded to drive social change through impacting the world of business. Her goals are to support businesses, academic organisations and not-for-profits in achieving sustainable cultural change around inclusion and diversity. The business is founded on her pillars of real, genuine passion for the subject, an absolute interest, creative problem solving, and authenticity. She's a coach, mentor, and keynote speaker on diversity, inclusion, and bias. Please welcome Trish Driver. Trish, how are you? I'm good. Thank you, James. I feel like you need to lie down after that introduction. Well, <laughs> you've been a busy person. It's, it's really great. It's so nice to get you on the phone. And it's it's also really nice to have someone in the studio today who's actually just um, in Britain, because a lot of the, the things I've been doing recently have been with people overseas, and I've been up at all sorts of times, so so lovely on a, at a 10 o'clock in the morning to talk to somebody. Trish, where, where are you today? Are you at home in Hampshire? I am. I am sitting at home in the office and um, really reveling in the fact that for the first time in about a year, it feels it's not raining outside, which is just a joy. Spring is here, definitely, definitely. Although I had to scrape frost off the car this morning, so it's yeah. not quite as here as I'd <laughs> like it to be. Not quite. So you've been a busy person in your life. Are you, take us through, well, give us a little bit of background, but how did you get to where you are now with a new normal? So um, I spent um, the better part of 20 years or so working in corporates and with corporates, so either in-house or as a consultant. Um, and my career was really focused around uh, talent management. So the end-to-end talent management lifecycle, which is all of that good stuff from branding and attraction all the way through recruitment, learning and development, and then how you make sure that when people leave, they go with a with a spring in their step and joy and good feelings about your organization. Um, so that end-to-end right. talent management piece, but also a lot around culture change. Um, and what I found okay. over the duration of my career was that there was there was an element of diversity and inclusion in everything that I was doing and it grew more and more important as I as I worked through my career and and I realized it was something that 
was really important to me on a personal level as well as on a work level. Um, Mm -hmm. And I had a a great opportunity whilst working with Capgemini to really put that into practice um, and to work around what what Capgemini does um, or did with their um, with their approach to inclusion and diversity. And that was that was really the most exciting job that I'd ever done in corporate. Um, and I kept finding myself having these moments of going, oh, I should really do some work and then going, I am working, but it doesn't feel like work. I'm so <laughs> excited about yeah. it. Um, so that was fantastic. And that really awakened this kind of this thought process in me that had been brewing for quite a long time about oh, actually, this is something that I really want to do. And I, and I got to the end of the project that I was working on within CAP um, and went and did something else there. And all the while this idea was brewing, actually, this is something that I really want to do for other organisations. Um, so started some conversations with a few different people and set up the business. And yeah, I haven't really looked back since then. So now I spend all of my time every day doing what I love, which doesn't very often feel like work. Um because I just love what I do. So I get to go and work with all of these different clients in different sectors. Mm-hmm. Um, so you obviously reeled off some of those at the beginning. And and I think I'd had this preconception that I would, because I'd spent so much of my career working in and with tech companies, that that would be where I would end up in the business. But actually, it's been much more balanced than that. So um, we do work now with tech companies still. So I still have a little bit of my uh, my former history and what I'm doing now. Yeah, um, yeah. But we also work with media companies. So you mentioned Bauer Media and Audible. Um, and we're just branching out into the not-for-profit sector as well. So it's really, it's really exciting. And I think the thing that I love about my work is that you can apply the same principles to all of these different organizations. Mm-hmm. But what we do is different for every single client that we work with. You mentioned from a personal level, or there was, there was a personal attachment to this. Where does that come from? It's um, it's a really interesting thing, and I, I guess, I'm, I'm kind of a big believer in you know our core values being really intrinsic to who we are, and I guess mm. I was always brought up with that, that really important sense of fairness and justice. Um, mm. and I was really lucky whilst I was at Capgemini to go through um bit of a life-changing experience which sounds a bit like you're over-egging it when you talk about it but it was um it was a leadership development program and I'd kind of had this preconception in my mind that I was going on this program and I was going to be molded into this shape of leader and actually what happened was they talked to us about what's what's really important for you as an individual what are your values and how does that shape you as a leader so through that it it, kind of grew to this realization that actually equality is just really central to who I am as a person um, and because that's so important to me, I'd never, I'd never thought about the idea of being able to, to kind of take that and do that every day for what I do as a job. And so being able to do something that I'm really passionate about, that's really important to me on a day-to-day basis, mm-hmm. I guess it just comes back to that personal value of, of fairness and justice. When I talk to people about these things, and I, and I, I think back into my, my recruitment career and you know, 20 years ago, I was meeting businesses who were talking about diversity as a part of their recruitment policy. Um, and it was a bit of a hot potato. Well, hot potato. It was a buzzword back then. It was a new yeah. thing. Um, I don't know why it was a new thing, but it was. It was people were saying, oh, well, you know, we must be diverse. Um, and people saw that as a bit of a negative back then, that almost it was a, it was an anti-recruitment policy. You, know, you can only hire people if they fitted into a diversity model rather than actually hiring the best people. Um, which always amazed me. And now we're talking about it still. Why are yeah. we still talking about it? 
It's um, that's the million dollar question, James. And I think I, you know, I still hear conversations um, along those lines, obviously, in you know, the, the spaces that I work in, the conversations that I have with people that mm-hmm. there's almost this perception that you can have the best person for the job, or you can have diverse recruitment, and the two are mutually exclusive. And mm-hmm. that's one of the things that kind of almost makes my head explode a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> for me, that is absolutely not the case. And I think about time and time again, the examples that I've seen of where going out and recruiting from really diverse talent pools. And when I say diverse talent pools, I mean for businesses to go and look in different places for people. Because yeah. what you quite often find is that companies go, well, you know, we have problems recruiting and, you know, we can't even fill the roles that we have at the moment. And, you know, so we can't even talk about diversity because that's going to narrow the pool down. And that's mm-hmm. absolutely not the case. What you what you can do by broadening your talent pools and looking in different places for people is actually find, I would say, a much better talent and be much more talent yeah. than you would than you would originally find. But you know, as human beings, we just have this programming around this safety bias of mm-hmm. thinking, well, you know, we've always done it this way, so this is the safest way to do it, and anything else feels risky and scary and different. So I'm not mm-hmm. going to do that unless I'm really pushed to do it. But if I think about some of the benefits that my clients and organisations that I've worked with have seen. Yeah. It's it's absolutely phenomenal. Taking, for example, returnships. Um, so the returnship is um, something which was which was, I guess, initially born out of the financial sector. Um, right. Taking people who'd had career breaks for whatever reason and giving them an opportunity to step back in, because you'll know this, James, um, from your recruitment background. A gap in somebody's CV can be a bit of a kiss of death in mm. some organisations. Yeah. Um, so the the financial sector was the first sector to tap into this really and say this is potentially a group of people that we should think about getting back in touch with and bringing back into the workplace. Um, and PwC did a study a few years ago which said um, that there's around half a million economically inactive professional women in the UK who are on career breaks for whatever reason, and yeah. 76% of those women want to get back into work. So you think about the size of that talent pool of professional women. And this study was done maybe three or four years ago. Mm-hmm. So that's that's going to have grown in that time. Um, so um, whilst I was at Capgemini, um, I designed and set up their first returner program. Um, and I'd spent a lot of time talking to hiring managers there about, you know, this real difficulty with finding good technical talent. Um, we opened up the, the opportunities for this program. And within the first three weeks, had 300 applications, which is <laughs> kind of, um, it was more than I was expecting. Certainly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and because I'm something of a control freak, I couldn't just leave it to my team to get on with the screening. So I was kind of scrolling around in the, in the CVs and having a look at what was in there. Mm. And I kid you not, the first five CVs I opened had exactly the skill set that people were lamenting missing within their teams. So some really technical skills of people who'd just taken a little bit of time out. And yeah. I think about the difference, and, and I know now that CAP have continued to run that and are having great success with that program. But there, you know, there's there's often quite a lot of resistance within organisations when it comes to um, when it comes to that that talent pool or looking at people with careers break. And again, it's it's around this safety bias of we want people to show that they have worked consistently for the last however many years, and we're nervous mm. when we see a career break. But by, by thinking in that way, organizations are missing out. 
Well, you mentioned narrowing the pool down before that if you were recruiting diversely, sorry, if you were using diversity as one of the measures for your recruitment policy, that you were narrowing the pool. I, I mean, that, that's got to be the opposite, doesn't it? Exactly. Surely if you remove any bias yeah. or un- unconscious bias, then, then your pool becomes bigger. It definitely how much does. how much unconscious bias is there? Because you mentioned the returning mum thing. Now I was sitting in uh, in a cafe last week, waiting for someone to have a coffee with, and behind me were two women, and they were, or for want of a better word, bitching about um, how difficult it was getting back into work in yeah. the businesses which they had actually just gone on maternity leave from. They hadn't mm-hmm. left. They'd taken normal time out. You know, <laughs> we have a baby. We have you know, spend time at doing the things that most people you know would relish to be able to do with their young family. Um, but then going back into work was was becoming a difficulty for them, um, and I and I found that quite amazing. But wh- mm. why is that? Why? Where? Sorry, let's go back into the bias part of that. Yeah. How how does that affect normal businesses, and why is it? Well, how does it uh, how does it come out in day to day life? I think I mean the really interesting thing about bias, um, James, is because I do quite a lot of work around supporting my clients with stripping out some of that bias. You say those two words together, unconscious bias, and people immediately get this haunted look on their face like they're about to be told off for something. But right. bias in and of itself is just its just a function of who we are as human beings. And it's an uh-huh. evolutionary tool, and we've evolved to kind of make these quick links rather than needing to, to really evaluate every detail of something. And that's mm-hmm. really helpful from an evolutionary perspective because it helps us to kind of steer away from the things that are dangerous and towards the things that are safe. Yeah. So we need to recognize that everybody has bias. We, we carry it around with us all the time, but it's not helpful when it comes to work. And what it does at work is it encourages us to stick to the same patterns mm-hmm. and to recruit people who we feel remind us of ourselves in some way. And yeah. if you think about some of the imbalances around, you know, taking gender as an example, some of the imbalances around um, gender in terms of levels in businesses, then the natural thing that you're going to get is, senior people at the top of the business thinking I need to recruit people who are like me so people who are really committed and when you say the word committed I don't know what pops into your head but if you're quite often people who have had a career break are maybe perceived as being slightly less committed than others which is absolute nonsense because I look at the people that came through this returner program and actually it wasn't just women who were coming Mm -hmm. back through there were there were a lot of men in that group as well who'd taken time out um but it's just kind of it's thinking about things in a different way. And what quite often happens when we're recruiting people into businesses is that we think, well, OK, I know I know this this vacancy has been created by somebody leaving my team. Mm-hmm. What I need is exactly what that person was. So I need them to operate in the same way. I need them to have exactly the same skills, exactly the same knowledge, exactly the same experience. I just I just want a carbon copy of that person because that feels yeah. safe because you yeah. because you know that that person worked in that role. Mm-hmm. But that's quite a that's quite a limiting belief to carry around even at a subconscious level with ourselves. Well, it's safe and it's also it's lazy and easy, isn't it? You know, if I know yeah. that, um, you know, I, I think back to um, to you know looking at, at criteria for, for people for, for roles and, you know, the simple stuff of they must have a degree from this kind of university yeah. and blah, blah, blah. And you look at it and think, well, that's just a really easy way. But it's, it's making a, an assumption that if you've got a degree from that particular university, then you are a better candidate mm-hmm. than somebody has a different degree from elsewhere. Now, yeah. that is breaking down certainly because um, – because it, it it should, I guess. But I've also still I'm still seeing you know I'm still still seeing clients who are who are very wedded to that kind of 
previous thought process. Um, and then they, in the same breath, talk about, well, you know, we want to, we want a, a, a diverse workforce, and and you know, we don't, we know that diverse isn't just skin color; it's everything else. Um, when people talk about diversity and inclusion, the two words go together all the time. But what, you know, for, for people listening who aren't quite sure, what do the dif- what is the difference? What do they mean? Um, that's that's another great question, James, and it's one of those ones I think we because you are so used to hearing them together over and over again, um, people almost use them like they're they're interchangeable or they mean the same thing. So, right. for me, I would say diversity is all of those different things that make us different from one another, and for me, all of those things that bring value. I guess you know even more in in the media sector where I'm working, but also from a tech perspective, a lot of what companies are looking for is creativity. And they want that innovation and the ability to think differently about problems that that are going on within their business. So that diversity is that difference of thought and that difference of experience and background that sparks something and that creativity there. Um, So diversity is that difference and inclusion is the way that you make that difference work together. I think the other thing that I would say about inclusion is that quite a lot of the time people tend to equate inclusion with an absence of exclusion. Right. Which for me is absolutely not correct, because if you think about if you think about the experience of somebody who's in an underrepresented group, they are going to need something a lot more than an absence of exclusion to make them feel like they belong somewhere. So if you think about some some statistics around this, um, there's been some some really sad research around the fact that whilst one in four of us will experience poor mental health at some point, only half of us will share that with our workplace. And if you think about um, some research that was done by Stonewall in the last couple of years, um, over 60% of graduates who were out at university as either lesbian, gay or bisexual went Mm -hmm. back into the closet when they started their first job. And if you think about those two examples, which on the face of it might seem quite different, those individuals are not choosing not to disclose because they are seeing proactive signs that they will be excluded because that's just illegal but they're not Mm -hmm. seeing those really proactive signs that they are welcome and they will be supported and it is safe to be who they are at work. So for me, that inclusion really has to be something very active. It can't be passive and it can't be something Mm -hmm. that's in any is that is just implied or kind of under the surface or is explained away as an absence of exclusion. You have to be really proactive about it. I really, I mean, when you, when she mentioned that kind of the sexual orientation at work and, and being kind of wary of, of, uh, of just being yourself I guess yeah. I mean I, I understand it um you know I, I I'm Jewish boy I'm not a religious man but um but I've come across plenty of bias in my life and so quite often you still feel yourself I mean at, at nearly 50 years old holding your tongue and going oh, oh hang on a yeah. second let's just see what my audience is before I tell them who I am um and I think that's really sad I mean I know that uh you know I I don't do that um but I've felt it certainly in the past and I see it mm-hmm. in businesses I go into but I also don't see it in the younger businesses is there a gender difference sorry <laughs> I just <asked> that question again. <laughs> is there a generational difference um, I, I think that there is a generational difference and that's certainly something that I perceive with the different demographics within a business. But I think if you if you consider 
that the majority of, of businesses within the UK will have that full spectrum. We are part of an aging population. Mm-hmm. Um, so what you quite often see is, yes, the, the younger generation, I definitely don't put myself there anymore, um, but the younger generation will have much higher expectations from the company that they're going to work with about inclusion, about the way people are treated, about openness. And I right. think sometimes that can be a bit of a shock coming up against traditionally an older generation who are more likely to be in those leadership positions so I think from a generational perspective it's something that we have to wrap our heads around because there is that expectation coming up and that can cause that can cause real challenges um Mm -hmm. from a from a cultural perspective so it's it's but but I think as well as the generational piece it's about kind of who holds the power in that organization as well um we're we're talking a lot with our clients um especially this year around power and privilege at work and I think Mm -hmm. this this term privilege is oh so loaded it's another one of those words that you start talking about it and people kind of shrink back a little bit um but I think for me it's it is you know privilege is privilege is really important you can't have a conversation about inclusion without having that and I will put my hands up and say I am straight I'm cisgender so I'm not trans I'm white I'm middle class I have so much privilege, so much mm-hmm. privilege that I need to recognize that everybody's experience is not the same as mine. Um, right. So I've, I've never experienced, you know, as, as some of my friends who are part of the LGB community have, that yep. experience of holding hands with the person you love in the street and being abused for it. I've, I've never experienced that. And it's really important, I think, to kind of, I guess, see privilege as, as almost blinkers that's how um there's a great vlogger called Francesca Ramsey and that's how she talks about it blinkers so the horses who are wearing those blinkers they can see all the stuff that's in front of them that's great they see loads of stuff there but there's a whole load of stuff going on either side of them that is just never perceived by them so they've got these blinkers on and I I like that as an analogy for privilege because if we're gonna if we're gonna start having these meaningful conversations at work we have to be mindful of how our experience relates to that of other people because otherwise we're never going to create those workplaces where everyone can be themselves you talk I mean when you talk initially and we read those company names I mean those are big multinational multicultural businesses most businesses aren't most businesses are small Mm-hmm. Um, most businesses don't. I mean, I, when you start talking about privilege, then this is where my mind, my thought process is coming from. Um, I suddenly thought white privilege, then I thought America, then I thought America's race problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that's impacted, obviously, because the world is, you know, connected. And so we, we pick up um, these things from each other. Um, so something that's potentially a bigger problem in one country isn't necessarily as big a com- problem here. And the big companies will certainly feel that much bigger, bigger than the smaller ones. Um, but when I say that, then I start to to question myself and actually say, well, actually, no. Um, you know, I went to a private school. I went to university. My the my 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 dad's a doctor. My mum's a psychologist. Um, the expectation of me was that I would go to uni and I would become a professional. Um, you know, for my entire life, I've had that. Um, but in a lot of society, in most of society, that's not the case. Do we sit in a bubble? Do we just, do we, obviously we look at the world through our own eyes and we perceive it the way we see it. But um, are we missing something by doing that? I, I love that you use the word bubble there, James, because that's the other way that I, I talk about um, privilege. It's kind of, you, you sit inside your own little bubble of your own experiences. And mm. um, coming back to the example of, you know, the, the friends of mine who 
been abused on the street for just you know my, my friend was abused for holding hands with her wife right. and I was I was explaining that story to another one of my friends who is a straight white guy in his 30s and he he couldn't he couldn't actually process what I was saying to him he said you don't mean she got abused on the street you mean she got some grief on Twitter because inside his bubble were not only his own experiences and how you know he lives his life and he's never experienced that kind of thing but also his values as well that that would be the absolute last thing that would cross his mind as a reaction. So he couldn't even quite process that that had happened to somebody else. So I think we, you know, we are inside our own bubbles of experience. And I think we do, we have, we have problems when we, when we don't step outside of those because you have to understand the perspectives of other people. And Mm -hmm. I, I still find even doing this work and having done this work for a number of years now, that I'm still I'm still learning that there are other things I thought my blinkers were gone but there are still other blinkers that I hadn't realized were still there that were obstructing a bit of my vision um so my my very relevant example this week is that I am doing some work for a client we're looking at the experience of different people in their business and um we were looking at a survey that they'd run for their people um and I was looking at the experience of parents versus non-parents and actually what occurred to me at the end of this week, having parented my two kids solo whilst my other half's been away on a business trip, was mm-hmm. we really need to look at the experience of the single parents versus the parents who are in a, in a partnership of some kind. Because, James, I'm almost dead by the end of this week. And I think <laughs> <laughs> that experience, you know, you kind of think yeah. parenthood is the same thing regardless of how you do it. It's, I'm only laughing because I, I know exactly yeah. what you're talking about. <laughs> it's definitely not. They've broken my spirit this week, James. Um, right. <laughs> But I think, you know, those we have to kind of keep stepping outside of our bubble. And that's, you know, that's a bit of a lighthearted example, but mm-hmm. we have to keep stepping outside of it. So I had another really stark experience a few years ago in my career that's really stuck with me um, when I was working with a, a large tech company and we ran a hackathon for members of the trans community. And it was an incredible day. Um, all of these people coming together to work on a shared purpose about tools and applications that can make things better for the trans community which is frankly one of the most marginalized and abused groups in society mm-hmm. and I'd never I'd never kind of put myself in that situation but seeing some of the work that they were doing that day so there was an amazing app called Twilight People um, which okay. is for trans people of faith who'd been excluded from their religions, but still needed to feel that sense of connection and community. So that mm-hmm. this, this team was designing an app and I thought, you know, I'm, I'm not religious myself, but I can understand how painful that must be to be excluded from something that's meant so much to you because you're being yourself. Um, there was another team that were creating an app to show safe bathrooms in a city. I can't, I can't even wrap my head around that, you know, not feeling like you can't walk in to a, a bathroom because you fit you feel what's going to happen as a result of that and it was it was kind of this day of just shattering and destroying the blinkers from around mm. the outside and I, th- I think we've we've all got a responsibility if we really want to see things change to do as much as we can to educate ourselves about the perspectives and experiences of other people 
I was about to talk about understanding because a lot of bias comes from mis- just not knowing and fear of the yeah. difference and, and what have you. But then um, and I think if we start on that line, we'll, we'll talk for another half an hour at least yeah. just on that. Where does a business start? If I'm sitting in my office today, I'm listening to you speaking, I'm thinking, do you know what? I don't think I've got any bias, but maybe I do. Or, um, you know, uh, is this business as inclusive as it should be? Or uh, how we? where do you start to think about it? How do you start to, to sit down and analyse where you are so you can start to think about where you want to be I am I always say with my clients and you know having said that everybody's very different I think the starting point always needs to be quite similar Um, so I think you know the first thing that's really important is for a company to baseline where they are and I think they, there's some really useful ways of doing that so from a demographic perspective understanding kind of what does your population look like from all of the different characteristics so all of the protected characteristics but I would always include social mobility with that as well um, and understanding from just from a demographic perspective but then I think you also need to do a piece of work alongside that which is about the experiences of those people in your business um, okay. so we do a lot of work in partnership with a brilliant organization called Great With Talent and um, they run inclusion surveys for companies so specifically focused on the experience of different people within a company Mm. and the thing that I love about working with Great With Talent is that it really gives you the opportunity to get under the skin of an organization and to understand how how your people's experiences because if you look at as a whole a company's a company's scores around you know how included you feel at work the chances are if they are a typical business or organization working in the UK they're likely to be slightly homogenous in some areas. Mm -hmm. So you're likely to see probably um, a disproportionate number of white people. You're likely to see probably a few more men than women, depending on which sector you're in. If you're in the tech sector, it's going to be a lot more men than women. Um, You're probably likely to see a lot more straight people than people who are part of the LGBT community, et cetera, et cetera. So seeing as a whole the chorus voice, you've got to understand that that's going to be a voice of majority. But the real beauty of getting to grips with the data is that you can compare the experience of your underrepresented groups and really start to understand whether there are any challenges within your business. And that experiential piece is really crucial. Um, And I think the other thing that I would say that I always say to my clients is you have to start the conversation with your people as well. And I don't just mean sending out an email saying we're now focusing on diversity and inclusion. I mean, actually, take this box of which kind of white person you are. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah actually equip your people to have meaningful discussions with their teams mm-hmm. about how they feel about work because you, you can't separate diversity and inclusion out as something different it's it's part of your culture and it should be part of everything you do in your business well you spoke there about tech business being you know predominantly white predominantly male predominantly straight um i think back to uni and the guys who were in the um in the in the uh, engineering faculty there are about 140 of them two of them were women um, you know, when you've got a, an education system or, you know, we're talking a long time ago now, Trish, but, you know, when it's that bias, when it's that sort of skewed, I guess, at the starting point, it's, it's, it's very natural that, you know, 30 years on that the workforce is going to look the way it is. Mm-hmm. Um, is that a bad thing, though? Well, I probably would say yes, wouldn't I? <laughs> I, I think we, I think and this is kind of comes sort of almost full circle to the beginning of our conversation. I do this because I think business has the opportunity to really influence wider culture and society. And Mm -hmm. I'm a parent of two daughters 
And I see how even at the ages of four and eight, they're starting to absorb cues about what's expected of them from society as a whole. Um, Mm -hmm. So my older daughter came home from school, I think when she was in her first week of reception and said, oh, yeah, computers are for boys, which you can imagine my head exploded. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And and I think it's, you know, we have to start we have to start kind of breaking down those stereotypes really early on with kids because they absorb they're like little sponges. They absorb so much. But I think that the responsibility that we have as businesses is not just to accept that, okay, well, you know, only this percentage of engineers are women. So that's just the way it is. We're just going to accept that because otherwise nothing's going to change. So I think where, where you see really great things happening are where groups of businesses get together and put aside all of that competition stuff and start thinking about how can we change these perceptions going forward? So, Mm -hmm. um, I worked when when I was in house with one of our um, with one of the tech organisations that I've worked with. Um, I worked on a, a great project with the Department of Culture, Media and Sport about how do we encourage more young women into tech apprenticeships, and a lot of that comes back to you need to show them that this is a career opportunity for them. You need to show them that actually tech doesn't mean you know sit a brown polyester suits in a in a basement somewhere. It's the mm. stuff that's in the pockets or handbags of their parents, you know, the the phones and the tablets and the technology and explain to them if you, you know, if you, if you want these tools to work for you in the future, you need to be part of designing them. Um, yeah. So kind of, and giving them those role models. So there's some, there's some incredible, incredible women working in tech. Um, so I love um, Dr. Sue Black, who does so mm-hmm. much work in evangel- evangelizing about tech and is a fantastic role model and is now a professor of computer science at Durham University. And she's yep. she's an incredible role model. She is literally living the role model dream, kind of showing showing these young women and inspiring them into tech, which I think is fantastic. But we have to it's it's one of those things that isn't going to happen overnight. We have to keep chipping away at it. But if we all take the attitude of, well, this is the talent pool and we just accept that that's how it is, then we're never going to change anything. Well, that's a perfect spot to finish our conversation, Trish. I really, really enjoyed this, and I was about to go, you know, get on a very high horse. My my daughter's eleven, and uh, and uh, she would stand people and point at them and shout at them if they started suggesting that she could only do something because she's a girl. Um, she would have them. <laughs> Trish, please leave us with your one thought, your one big thing, your golden nugget, something that people could do in their businesses today to make them better for today and better for the years to come, what would that be? I think for me, it's all about starting the conversation, James. I think mm-hmm. getting outside of our comfort zones, talking to people who maybe aren't the kind of people that we normally speak to and building those relationships. And that's what we can do on an individual level. But from a business level, think about how you can create an environment where it's safe for people to be themselves at work and they feel not just not just kind of accepted but i think celebrated for the difference that they bring to the workplace because for me that is that's the biggest impact that we can have fabulous trish thank you so so much thank you james i hope you really enjoyed this episode of the only one business show and i look forward to sharing your company again very soon if you'd like to subscribe please do so wherever you pick up your podcasts and in the meantime have a great day Bye for now.